Well, church, um, here we go. We are in our season series where we've been going through the life of David and looking at the different seasons that he experienced as a leader and, and the different things that he walked through. And, and we are in uh, a part of the story which really is going to hinge around this idea of faith. And I love that song we just said, sang, that don't tell me he can't do it. Come on, how many of you know that's a faith statement? That's a faith statement. That's a bold statement. Don't you tell me he can't do it. Don't you tell me it's not possible. And I've noticed something shift. I've noticed something shift in society on, on a greater level that I've, than I've ever experienced in my lifetime. And it's this idea that everybody I'm talking to, whether it be neighbors or people out um, and, and just, you know, even shopping or at work or, or people I interact with and phone conversations from around the nation, there's sort of this prevailing idea that the, the future is going to be worse than the past. There's sort of this prevailing dread, like, ah, everything's getting worse. It's just going to keep getting worse. There's sort of this prevailing idea that, man, I just, I don't know. Like, and, and I feel like for most of my childhood and young adult years, it was like, man, it's going to get better. Come on, it's, the world's going to keep, there's this, this, this optimism in the air. And how many of you know there's just a pessimism in the air? It even just comes out in like, yeah, just in, in small ways, like just focusing on the negative, focusing on the dread. Ah, yeah, but it's probably going to be this, or ah, there's going to be, right, focusing on it. And I, I, this word dread is kind of funny to me. Have you ever, have you ever just like, have you ever just dreaded something? Like, like you're like, this, I'm dreading it. With this date on the calendar, when this date comes, I'm dreading it. I'm not looking forward to this moment in my life. And um, the worst dread that I, I was literally thinking in my mind, I go, what's the moments of dread? I remember the worst job I've ever had was commercial flat roofing. So we would work on roofs like this, flat roofs, okay? And, and we were working, I'd just gotten hired, and, and I'd just gotten hired for this big project actually at Cedar Valley Church, an AG church in Bloomington, Minnesota. We used to be Bloomington Assembly. It's a huge remodel they were doing, and we were doing this job. And first, we had to go up and tear off an original roof from when the original building was built there in Bloomington. It's a very old building. And so um, I, I get this job, and I'm excited. I'm going to make money. I'm trying to intern at the church and work this job on the side and all this stuff. And I show up in the middle of summer. It's a hot July day. And we're tearing off this old roof. And it was made of pitch and tar, pitch and tar. And so you cut into the pitch and tar roof. And then you take these kind of big plies and you, you, you break up the squares and then you throw the squares in the dumpster. So my first day I'm up on the roof and, and I notice all of the other workers, they're, they're, they're wrapping themselves up in like fabric, in like cloths. I'm like, it's hot up here. Why are you, they're putting on layers and they're covered, I mean, down to like, they're, they're literally putting on these rags as like, you know, a head, headdress and then all over their face, they're covering up every inch. I'm like, it is forget that. It is so hot up here. They're like, you, you should do this. Cover up, cover up. I'm like, no, I'm not covering up. Like, I want to get my tan on. You know what I mean? Like, this is a good opportunity. I'm single and 18. Like, I need to look good, okay? Like, I'm going to work hard. I'm not wearing that. And, um, and, and as some sort of cruel joke or, like, initiation, they didn't tell me why they were wrapping up. It actually wasn't just sun protection. Uh, it wasn't just to try to stay cool. It was actually because pitch in a hot, dry summer day, pitch turns into dust. 
and that dust turns into basically shards of many pieces of fiberglass. And that dust goes into your open, sweaty pores. And any pore that is opened up, this pitch gets into. And by the end of the day, my entire body was on fire. Little did I know that there's actually something called pitch burn. And it got up under the backside of my eyelids. So when I shut my eyes, the burn got worse. So the more I close my eyes, so try sleeping. You're like, ah, and then you're opening your eyes and just, your eyes are just watering, right? Like uncontrollably. My first day on the job, pitch burn head to toe. And then uh, I go, a few days go by and I'm still feel like I'm in initiation phase. And I remember, I remember I was so exhausted. Now we had to shovel all this rock and I had a 12 hour day of shoveling rock into wheelbarrows. And on about the 12th hour off Cedar Valley Church, I remember taking a wheelbarrow load and it was almost night. Like the sun's going down. That's how long this day was. And I'm going over the side of the building and you would dump the wheelbarrow into a dumpster down below. And I'm going up and I'm pitch burned and I'm sweaty and I'm exhausted and I've been dreading this. And I take the wheelbarrow and I'm going off the, going over the edge and I tip the wheelbarrow and my fingers literally just lock up and my body just gives up, and I just go over the edge of the rough with the wheelbarrow. And I remember, I can still picture falling towards this dumpster, and somehow instinctively I push the wheelbarrow out of the way, slam into the rocks below, and sort of do this barrel roll in the dumpster, and I pop up. Praise God, I was only 18 years old, right? I could like take it. And, uh, and I remember going, oh no. I'm so embarrassed. Like, what's going to happen? And I rush, and I climb back up the roof. And every other worker, I kid you not, by the time I get back up on the roof, they were all frozen mid-shovel. Like, we just killed him. Like, he's dead. He's dead. It's over. Like, that kid is dead in the dumpster. I'm like, hey, guys, I'm okay. I'm okay. And uh, from that day on, though, they were really nice to me. They were like, okay, he's in. He's in. His initiation's over. But I remember that job was so hard, I would just dread it. I would just dread it. And it would suck, the dread would just suck the life out of me. And all of a sudden it was hard to like believe that tomorrow would be awesome when it was gonna be 120 degrees up on the roof, right? We all have things that we're like, I just, I dread it. I don't wanna do it. I'm not looking forward to it. But now imagine if Christians across America just decided or across the world, we just dread the future. Ah, man, it's gonna get terrible. Man, I just, you know, tomorrow's probably not going to be that great. I just don't know if it's worth getting up anymore. And I just, you know, what if all of a sudden Christians stopped having faith, believing truly that our best days are right in front of us, that there is a future hope and a victory for us? What if Christians lose that? You see, the reality is, is that overwhelming prevailing dread can give way to the hope of the gospel, but not if we lose our faith. Not if we get so caught up in the grind and the negativity and the pessimism and everything that's trying to rob us of our faith. Because dread puts faith to death, church. Dread will kill your faith. If you're dreading your life, if you're believing it's all going to get worse from here, if we feel that, it's going to put our faith to death. But, you know, because if, if I can't believe in the future, it's impossible to stir up my faith. If I don't believe in the future, like if I'm not like, man, I'm, I see it. I'm believing for great things. I'm going for it. I, I know God wants to do something awesome. If I can't believe for the future anymore, how am I supposed to stir up faith? In an artisan church, I want to be a church that believes for the miraculous. I want to I be a church that believes in faith that it's going to get better. Hey, come on, we believe in our best days. Yes, they're still to come. Come on, we're believing God's going to do it. We're believing God's going to do it. And we've seen in this series 
that over and over again, in season and out of season, David seemed to have a lot of faith in his life. One of the reasons I think he's preached about so much is the amount of faith that he had. But I actually thought, hey, let's reverse engineer this just a little bit. And when was a moment when he really lacked faith? And what did that look like? And believe it or not, when I read through the stories of David, this, what I'm about to preach, I see as his greatest mistake. And you'd be like, oh, he's going to preach about David and Bathsheba on Father's Day? No. Um, But I'm going to preach instead about a moment where David chose to take a census. I'm going to explain to you why I actually believe this is his greatest mistake. And and there's this story, and and we're going to kind of jump around uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24 and just catch you up to speed. He's been king. He's had insane victories. He has built um, uh, his kingdom, so to speak. He has had um, just the favor of God behind him. He's been a successful king at this point. He's nearing, right, this is not early on in the story anymore. Now we're pretty far along into the story, and he's seen a lot of success. And something really interesting happens in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And um, it also, um, you, you, you can also read it in, in Chronicles, and, and it says it there as well. There's a similar story, but I'm going to choose to read out of 2 Samuel here. And, um, and we see that David, in Chronicles tells us that, it, that the enemy began to, the devil began to incite David. And, and we see also in 2 Samuel chapter 24 that the Lord actually allowed this temptation to be kindled against David. He actually allowed for David's uh, pride to come up in this moment, and, and he chose to take a census. And in verse 2, it says, of chapter 24, it says, So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. I love that. What's his why? So I may know the number of the people. Like, that's a bad why. Why, 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 why are we doing this census? Because I just want to know. Why did David want to know? We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll speculate about it. He just wanted to know. But Joab, the leader, said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they, as they are. Will the eyes of my Lord the king still see it? But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab, side note, leaders, if all of your leaders that are under you, we talked about authority last week, if everybody advises you against it, it might be a moment to pause and go, is this right right now? Should I be doing this? I'll have Joab and all of the commanders disagreed with him in this. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. In verse 8 it says, so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. It took him nine months. He sent him on a nine-month journey to do this count. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, where there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. So 1,300,000 fighting men of Israel. Now, it's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm going to break this down before we continue. Uh, this, this entire chapter is really unique. Because we actually see that the previous census that was taken was actually done by Moses. But there was a huge difference. Moses was instructed by God to take the census. And he said, for everyone that you count, have that, God told Moses, every person you count must also give an offering. 
to, 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 to remember, hey, what this is really about. It's not about how great we are. It's not about how big we are. And actually, God was doing it because it was an intentional piece because they were about to go into battle. And so we see in that sense is they were only counting also the, the, the men of war. And it's interesting that David, not in the season of war, also only counted the men of war. Because usually censuses would count everybody. And so a lot of times in the Bible we see them only talk about men and we understand some of that societal stuff. But here he focused on the men of war. And it's almost like he's draw, trying to draw a comparison to the last census. How good have I done? 400 years ago, we know that Moses took a census. How much have we grown? H have I gone beyond that? Where is that at? Because Moses' census was, was uh, 677,000 fighting men. And then here's David. He's like, oh, I cracked a million. <laughs> Moses couldn't crack a million, but I cracked a million, right? All of a sudden, it's like there's this comparison. But here's what's interesting. Uh, according to, 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 to the Jews of this time, they were only allowed to count that which belonged to them. And if you remember in my first message, my first message, why did David conquer Goliath? I speculated the idea that could it be Goliath thought and declared, and everybody else seemed to think that Israel belonged to Saul. That was Saul's army. He said Saul's army. But what did David said? God's army. Are we not God's people? Does God not own us? And yet there's this moment where David all of a sudden shifts here in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And if for him to think that he could take a census is saying, these are my people. All of a sudden, the very revelation that gave him victory in one season, the very revelation of faith that conquered Goliath, now in this season, he lost that revelation. And he's starting to count, hey, these are my people. These are my people. I own these people. Otherwise, I couldn't count them according to Jewish law. But I feel comfortable counting them. And he does this whole this thing. And that's why the commanders would have been like, hey, this is sinful. Don't do it. And then in verse 10, we see that David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. For what I have done is very foolish. And then it goes down and we see actually that God says, hey, there's going to be consequences to your actions. And he begins to map out three possible outcomes. And David pleads, don't give me to the hands of my enemies. Don't put the famine because then we would require other people. Instead, um, we want you to bring the punishment. I want to stay in your hands, God. I want it to be done by you. And the story goes on, and we know that God actually relents partway through the punishment. And, 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 and this moment on this threshing floor happens, and you can read the rest of the story. Again, I'm just paraphrasing quickly to get down to this next part for the sake of time. But it's on the fleshing floor of, uh, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, Aruna the Jebusite. That, 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 that the hand of the angel of the Lord stopped. And, and David has this moment where he, he begins to rush down there and he's saying, I'm going I'm to do an offering here. I'm going to rekindle my faith on the other side of this. And in verse 22, uh, Aruna actually went to David and said, let my lord the king take an offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of oxen for the wood. And all this, O king, Aruna gives to the king, and your God, uh, and may the Lord your God accept you in this offering. But the king said to Aruna, I, "No, but I will buy it from you for a price. For a price, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing." So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel in that moment. And here we see this very interesting story. 
where David, something rises up in David that we haven't really seen before. A level of arrogance, maybe. A level of pride, maybe. You know, why would he take this census? Maybe he honestly missed people singing about his glorious numbers. Saul's killed his thousands, but David, David's killed his ten thousands. Maybe they'd stopped singing about him, and he wanted to remind himself of how great it was. Maybe he had the dread of the countless enemies that he had now made and were getting stronger and building up against him, and he was nervous. Maybe he had dread about the future and wanted to try to preserve his army and see where he, what he was capable of. Or maybe it was as simple as he wanted to just see how proud of himself he should be. How proud, how good did I do? How good have I been at being king? How far have I gotten. Essentially, David here is trying to quantify his value in order to qualify himself. I'm trying to figure out my value according to these numbers. I'm trying to discover my value according to God. I'm trying to quantify my value so I can qualify myself and feel like I have made it. Have you ever had a moment like this? Maybe it's via your bank account or via goals at work. Come on, I can be a very goal-oriented person. I have to be so careful on how I set goals because I can be so focused on doing them myself and trying to accomplish it and feel a sense of pride, right? Like, ooh, I did it. I did it. I have to be careful. We've, I think we can relate with this desire to know what was the number. What was the number? And David was attempting to measure his success, but church, where we place our faith is the number one determiner on how we're going to feel effective. What do I mean by that? Where you put your faith. David shifted from putting his faith in God's hands to saying, I'm going to put my faith in my size of my army. I'm going to put my faith in what I'm capable of according to this number. I'm going to put my faith and my future in the hands of this census. I need to know so that I can feel good. Whatever the motive, there's no good reason why David could have done this. Because in this moment, he's taking his faith away from God and on to what he is capable of. Sometimes this is the struggle if you've actually been fairly successful. I think a lot of times sermons can gear towards people who continually maybe have had struggles, but what about those you've been pretty successful? You've done pretty well for yourself. You're, you're hitting your goals, you're on pace, you're doing okay. What do you, what, what, in that moment, there's a temptation of now you can sort of take care of yourself is how it feels. All of a sudden, this temptation can come in to put your faith in what you can do and not what God can do. All of a sudden, it becomes this temptation to say, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm doing pretty well. But I want to break down just a couple lessons we can learn quick as the keys come on up. Some lessons we can learn from this failure that David had. And this is, I see this as a faith failure. It's a moment where it wavers, right? Real faith in God says, hey, I'm going to put all my trust and my hope in you. And faith is a topic we will talk about constantly as a church. We're going to come at it from all different sides. You can never hit faith in a single sermon. It's one of the larger topics in Scripture. The two ones that are going to come out constantly from this pulpit is faith and grace, right? Like those two are just massive. There's massive topics. But I'm going to hit just a couple little things. And in our seasons series, again, learning from the life of David, not glorifying the life of David. Don't glorify the biblical characters like they're so much better or so perfect or had it all figured out. No, we can learn from the biblical characters. But one of the things we learn here is that faith can't be seasonal. Faith cannot be seasonal. Ah, I feel faith when things are going this way, but I don't feel faith when things are going that way. 
Our faith cannot come and go. It has to be consistent. You see, David's faith in one season did not reduce the consequences of his failure in another. You see, it wasn't like, well, David, you got it right so many other times. So I'm going to let this one slide, David. You're fine. That census, that was okay. You put your faith in yourself. You put your faith in what you were capable of. You put your faith in what you could quantify to feel qualified. That's fine. We're going to let you off the hook. Because you had such a life of faith. No, no, no. We're supposed to have faith in season and out of season. 2 Timothy 4.2, the Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy. And he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. When things come and go, whatever season you're in, faith has to be there. We got to have faith in what we're speaking. We got to have faith in what we're preaching. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We got to learn to be a little more consistent in our faith. We got to learn to step up to the plate when everybody else gets pessimistic and we're like, no, 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 God's got it. Just watch. Just watch. We got to learn that what happens when you don't get the results you want, though? What happens when you were believing in faith for a healing that doesn't come? Do you still have faith? Is your faith circumstantial? Our faith will no longer be seasonal when it stops being circumstantial. See, God is above the circumstance that you're in. God's above what you're walking through right now. You don't need to be able to quantify every detail. God loves to just, right, man makes his plans, but God directs his steps. We love to make our plans because we can put our faith in it. Come on, dads in the room, men, I just see this as super prevalent with us. I want to make my plans. I got to figure it out. Why? Because you want to take care of your family. Good motivation. And, and we could speculate that there's a lot of pride in here, but there, you could also speculate that David may have thought this was about keeping his nation safe. He may have felt the, the threats and thought maybe this is good, but it is never good to put your faith in what you can control completely. It can't be circumstantial. You can't build enough faith for your life in a single season. You can't do it. Well, I had a really good season. Everything worked out and faith filled. Woo! It's like golf. You ever had a golf swing where it was just perfect and you're like, I'm a good golfer now. If you golf, you know. You're like, I'm awesome. I'm so good at golfing. Did you see that swing? And then you get your faith rising up. And then what happens the next swing? You chip it, you slam into the grass and it's horrible. And then all of a sudden your faith just gets destroyed in your swing. You're like, I'm a terrible golfer. And then you hit about three bad swings, you get one good swing, you're like, I'm the best golfer, I'm awesome. It's this up and down game. It's the cruelty of an awesome sport. But life often is that way where we sometimes feel like the faith gets so high in one season, we're like, oh yeah, oh yeah. But there's a promise in this life we're gonna face trials. You're gonna have things come against you. There's gonna be situations. Is it circumstantial or is it above that? You can't build your faith enough for your entire lifetime in a single season. It requires a lifetime of developing. Say, man, I wanna put my faith in you. I don't wanna be seasonal in this. I wanna be committed. Another thing we see, a lesson we can quick learn is faithful has to be considered successful. And I use the word success and I think that's an interesting word. And don't hear me wrong on this. I, I wanna, you could also say faithful has to be considered effective. I think so many of us, we, we want to succeed at what God's called us to. We want to succeed at life. We want to be effective. And so sometimes we're just trying to quantify what that looks like and figure out what success means and what does it mean to be effective. This is a huge challenge actually in, in the field I'm in as a pastor. 
because ministry never stops, because people don't stop. People don't arrive. It's why I'm obsessed with doing house projects, because I can finish it and go, look, I built that. It's done. It's over. People never finish. People never arrive. And so pastors sometimes fall into this trap of trying to get numbers focused because they're just trying to quantify, am I qualified? Am I doing good? Right? We all want to know, are we doing good? Am I okay? Am I being effective? Am I successful? But can we stop looking at the results? And can we start looking at our faithfulness? Oh, was I faithful to what he said? Okay, then I did it right. Was I obedient? Okay, then I'm going to keep moving. We have to shift the narrative in our spirit. We have to stop believing that when we arrive at a certain end. Have you ever done this? Have you ever hit a goal and barely celebrated it? Because you're already on to the next one? Because success, you never arrive at success. You just keep climbing. There's always something more. There's always another level. But faithful, I can actually measure that. Am I still, man makes his plans, but God directs his steps. Am I still stepping according to God's purpose? Okay. Okay, then I'm good. Is everybody doubting me? Yeah, who cares? Do I look crazy to the world? Totally. You know how crazy I looked last summer? You quit your job, you moved home, and you don't have a sound. Like, what do you, what do you mean? What are you doing? Everyone thought I was nuts. But I was being faithful. So I was like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Did I have to keep reminding myself of that? Yeah. Did I think I was crazy most days? 100%. But did I remind myself? No, but I'm on purpose. We're going to close here. I just simple win. This was something my pastor down in Tulsa would say all the time, and I just I felt like I wanted to share it. He was a great faith pastor. We're going to get him in. We're, we got to bring him in to preach here. Um, and he would tell us every week, your best days are right in front of you, and I loved that. Kept it in front of us. But he'd say something all the time. He'd say, if you don't quit, you win. If you don't quit, you win. If you don't quit, you win. Keep going. Keep going. Somebody just needs to be reminded, just keep going. Stop trying to figure out what a win looks like. Just keep going. If you don't quit, you win. Keep going. You got this. Get your faith up. Don't let them tell you he can't do it. Don't let him tell you. Come on, man. Come on up here. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Come on. If you don't quit, you win. If you'll just keep moving. If you keep moving, keep going. There's something about consistency in the same direction. You may be moving slower than everybody else. Come on. You may be a tortoise, but it's okay. You're going to get the victory in the end. You are going to keep moving. You're going to keep heading there. And just final thought. Faith has to be future focused. See, why was this not a faith move? What do we have today? David wanted to know where he was at today. He stopped thinking about where they were going tomorrow. Faith is future focused. Come on, we want to be a church. It's like, hey, we're believing for something. We haven't arrived yet. Faith is future focused. Essentially, faith is farsighted. You know, it's funny. I feel like, Pastor Sam, why do you wear glasses sometimes and not other times? It's because I'm farsighted. Um, so I went in, and, and I would be working from the computer, doing a lot of writing. I'm a pastor. You write. And, and my eyes were hurting or whatever, and I went in, and I knew nothing about the whole, like, eye thing. I always had good vision, whatever. And I go in, and they, like, shoot air in your eyes. Really painful. You're like, this is actually horrible. They dilate you. You feel all weird. And, and they're doing this whole thing, and they're like, all right, well, hate to break it to you, Sam, but you're farsighted. And I'm like, what does that mean? They're like, well, it means you, you see really good far. And I'm like, What? <laughs> 
What? And they're like, yeah, it means you, 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 you're bad at seeing things close up. I said, you said farsighted like a bad thing, but it's what I'm good at. Only with eyesight do they call you what you're good at. That's like if I broke my right leg, and they're like, ah, oh, Sam, hate to break it to you, but you got a really good left leg. You got a great left leg, bro. You got the greatest left leg. And I'm like, yeah, but what about the right one? <laughs> and they're like, you're bad at seeing close up. You're bad at seeing close up. And I'm like, I'm okay with that. I want to see far away because then I can drive without glasses. I could do this. But when, I, when I'm looking at computers and stuff, the glasses help. Come on, church. We need to be farsighted. Farsighted is a gift when it comes to faith. Hey, I'm not so focused on everything that's not the way I want it to be yet because I can see down the road and I see the next road sign and the road sign after that and I'm walking the steps and God's got me and I'm going to be okay and I see down the track and God is good. He's good. He's going to be there. If he was there yesterday, he's going to be there today and he's going to be there tomorrow. Come on, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Church, why did we get pessimistic? Would you stand to your feet as we get reminded of what it means to be faithful. If we get reminded, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called, for those who are called according to His purpose, this is not a Christianese verse that gets said too often. No, it doesn't get said enough. Come on, He's going to work it together for good. What do I mean? What do I mean? Here's what doubt says. Doubt says, why God did this happen? Doubt says, why God? Why? Why, why, why? I don't understand. You want to know what faith says? Faith says, what are you going to do with this, God? See, the world wants to say, why God? We say, what now, God? What now, God? Because you're working. You're working. Even though I don't see it, you're working. You're doing something. And you're moving us forward. And church, we're believing for faith, not just for this church, but for you. But you got to get farsighted. You got to get future focused. You can't quit. You got to keep going and you got to be reminded that faithful is successful. So Jesus, as we begin to worship you right now, as we begin to praise you, Father, I pray you'd remind our spirits of what it means to be faith-filled and faithful. Lord Jesus, would you remind us to cast our eyes on you, to get a little more farsighted, to see down the road on what you're doing, to see the bigger picture of your kingdom impact. Lord Jesus, would you move? Would you challenge us as we worship, as we praise? Come on, would you sing?